Good morning. Back to John chapter 1, page 886. Uh, This morning we're looking at verses 1 and 2. I owe some of you an apology. I lied to you earlier this week. I said we'd do all of 1 through 5. I failed. I cannot do it. Uh, Beginnings are too important. This beginning is too important. Beginnings determine ends. So we've got to spend a little more time in the beginning. Because John begins with the beginning and wants you to see that the beginning is God himself. The beginning of everything, the source of everything, and thus the end and the goal of everything as well is God himself. But John's account of this beginning is is so important because it's John that gives us the clearest revelation of the nature and identity of this God who is the beginning. And so he grabs our attention right away as he writes, in the beginning... And we want to jump in and fill in the hole. We want to supply God. But John does something different. He writes, in the beginning, word. In the beginning, the word uh, was uh, the word. And so last week, we introduced the gospel of John, and we were introduced to this word. We saw that this word is eternal, revelational, relational. And if all of that is true, culminating and climaxing then at the end of verse 1, the word was God. But we're not done with this verse yet. We can't be. We're actually compelled by the text to continue looking at verse 1 because of verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 can be there for no other reason than to reinforce and reemphasize the previous verse. In the beginning, the word was with God. Hey, just in case you missed that, he was in the beginning with God. And so John wants to make sure that he is understood. And so he repeats himself. And so we have to go back. We have to sort this out. Because beginnings are so, so important. And because identity is so, so important. In the beginning, God, yes. But lots of people would have no problem affirming that. The question is, who is this God that is in the beginning? Who is he and what is he like? And this is foundational to everything else. Our, Our whole faith depends upon this point. It is the identity of God that makes Christianity distinct. It is the trinity of God that makes Christianity distinct. And so we're going to talk about that this morning from these two verses. The identity and nature of this God who was in the beginning. Because we've got, we've got these two statements about the word that taken separately, we're like, okay, sure, fine. He was with God. Okay, we get that. There's some sort of distinction here. The Word was with God. There's the Word and there's God. But then there's the next statement. The Word was God. I said, wait a second. How can the Word both be with God and God? That's a good and very important question that I want to tackle this morning. Because the question, if you remember, that this whole book is consumed with answering is simply who is Jesus? And this is the question of life and the question that you must be consumed with as well. Are we? Or are you? Is there any way you could say of yourself that you are consumed with Jesus Christ? Because if he is as he is revealed in this book, then we must be. If he is the word, if he is God, if he is life, then the only reasonable thing to do is to make him your life and to make your life all about him. Because he gave his life for you. But I think that many of us struggle with this. Why why is that? Well, I think it must be, in part at least, because we know too little about the bigness of this Jesus that we claim to love. And so we're studying this book because we want to see Christ. Some Greeks are going to come to Philip in chapter 12, verse 21, and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. We wish, we want, we desire to see Jesus. And that's what I want us to want. Because your experience of spiritual life is directly connected to your vision of the word who is life. And John here wants us to see that Jesus is so much bigger and more beautiful than we think. He wants us to see his goodness and his glory, his meekness and his majesty. John wants to convince you that all you need is found in Jesus and then compel you to believe in him, love him, and live for him. 
And John does that by revealing him to you as the word who reveals God to you. The God who is Trinity. The God who is so glorious and good and kind and beautiful. Maybe we're so caught up in the things of the world and consumed by such silly things and give so much of our time and attention to the things of earth, TV and social media and politics and all these other things. Maybe we give so much time and attention to those things because we have not yet been truly grabbed and grasped by the greatness of our eternally glorious God. Peter said in Sunday school this morning, we do not evangelize because we do not know God. I think that's excellent and profound. We say, oh, we're afraid, or we don't know what to say. or It all boils down to this. We do not evangelize because we do not know God. Amen. And so our goal this morning is simply to seek to know him a little bit better. Let's look at him again. We're going to start again with the word was God. That was our last point from last week. That's going to be our first point this week. We're going to see that the word was God, but then we're going to track and track that and understand that if that's true, then point two must follow. God is Trinity. And we just don't talk about the Trinity enough. Uh, But this is who God is. Do you know and do you understand and do you love him as Trinity? Do you appreciate the beauty of Trinity? Because then point number three, we're going to close by seeing that Trinity is life. No Trinity, no salvation, no Trinity, no forgiveness, no Trinity, no life. And so do you know this God as he is revealed in these first two foundational verses? John 1, 1 and 2. Let's read it. Who is this Jesus that reveals this triune God to us? Let's read our text. I'm going to read the whole of verses 1 through 18 again. We simply cannot read these verses enough. We're only going to look at verses 1 and 2, really. But let me read kind of the whole prologue for you to get our minds right, uh, to get our uh, focus set on the Lord, and then we'll come and, and tackle verses 1 and 2. And I promise we'll do more than one verse next week. I, no, we're going to try really hard to do more than one verse next week. Um, no guarantees. Pay attention. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Pay attention. Because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray before we begin. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your word is living and active. I believe that it is able to make us wise. For salvation, I believe that you have promised that your word will not return to you void. So, Father, we ask now that you would work through your word. Father, I pray that you would help the preaching of your word. I pray that you would help my words. I pray that you would help me and help everyone else in this room or listening online. Help the hearing of your word. Father, I pray that you would show us Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us a fuller appreciation for him, a great love for him. Help us to fix our minds on the most important thing, which is your son, Jesus. And Father, please help me to proclaim him truthfully and to proclaim him uh, clearly. Father, help us to love 
Jesus, please. Uh, we ask and we pray this only in his name. Amen. All right, the great Dutch scholar Herman Ritterboss writes concerning John 1.1, It is hardly conceivable that a deeper issue could have been expressed with greater simplicity and in fewer words. Right? It's not even conceivable to think that there's a deeper thing expressed with greater simplicity and in fewer words. And that we said last week was part of the brilliance of this gospel. Right? John writes simply and clearly. Often in introductory Greek, in the first semester, the first passage you translate is often John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The words, the writing, the grammar are brilliantly simple. First year Greek students translate this passage. But the concepts and the ideas conveyed in those words, writing, and grammar are also profoundly deep. And so it is in this very first verse. We've already mentioned the the importance of beginnings and ends. Well, at both the beginning and end, John wants to be as clear as he can about the case that he is making for the identity of Jesus. John 1.1, the word was God. John 20.28, Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. John writes to reveal to you that Jesus, the Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, is God himself come to rescue his people. The Word was God. It's point number one. And you just read the verse and you read the text and the point just seems undeniably clear. But as, as we mentioned last week, if you know anything, if you've ever had any experience maybe with the Jehovah's Witnesses, right, you know that they would aggressively disagree with that basic claim. In fact, they so disagree that they have their own entire translation of the scriptures to get around this clear, undeniable point. We're trying in this first point to unpack how the word can both be God and be with God. And many, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, would resolve this potential problem simply by denying that Jesus, the Word, is God. He can be with God, they would say, because he is not God. I remember pretty clearly my first real interaction with a Jehovah's Witness, a man, Bob, Bob Palmatier in Durham, North Carolina. He was much older than I. This was a long time ago. I knew nothing about the JWs at the time. And so I fell right into this man's trap. When the deity of Christ came up, I naively leapt right to John 1.1, and he present, pre- proceeded to open up his NWT, his New World Translation. By the way, I went to grab my New World Translation and bring it to show it to you. I can't find it. So if you got a hold of that for me, that's not the Bible. <laughs> I don't, if someone borrowed my New World Translation, don't be careful. I don't know where it is. It's not the Bible. That's the Jehovah's Translate, Witnesses translation of the Bible, and he opened up and showed me John 1.1, which reads in their translation of the scriptures, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a, little g, God. And then he went out, he threw in a little Greek, he talked about articles, he used the word anarthris, and I was just lost. He was quite prepared to talk about John 1.1, I was not. He had been equipped, I had not. He was wrong, I was right, but he definitely won the day. Uh, thankfully, we had many more opportunities uh, to talk about um, John 1.1 and Jesus and deity uh, since then. But John 1.1 is so clear and it's so important that it has been attacked from the beginning. Last week, I mentioned a man named Arius, one of the great uh, first heretics of the church. He was famous for saying there was once when he was not about Jesus. There was once when he was not. In other words, Arius, uh, those who have followed him, which would just be the Jehovah's Witnesses, are simply the most recent iteration of this most ancient of heresies. They would all argue that Jesus was not God, but that he was in some way God-like. He was in some way divine, but not God himself. He is greater than us, but he is less than God. He is greater than us, but he is created. He is a creature just like us. So tragically, the very verse in which John seeks to affirm that Jesus is God is used by many to deny that very truth. How? Well, how can the New World translation justify the word was a God? Well, it can't, but they attempt to justify it with grammar. Good. The irony. You think grammar is boring. Some think we shouldn't even get into Greek and grammar in sermons. But listen, don't miss this. We have an entire heresy here based in part on a failure to rightly understand grammar. They get the grammar wrong. 
they get God wrong. Right grammar helps us to get the right God. And we cannot overemphasize how important this is. We're going to see next week that Jesus is life in verse 4. One of the themes of this gospel is life. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God is life, and life is found then in knowing this God, knowing this God as he truly is. It doesn't matter if you attach the name God to something that is not actually God. Allah is not the same as the Jehovah of the Jehovah's Witnesses, is not the same as the Heavenly Father of the Mormons, is not the same as the God of present-day Judaism, is not the same as this God revealed in John chapter 1. And so, if life is knowing this God, then you better make sure you get him right. Because to get the one who is life wrong is to then get death. And so, all of a sudden, grammar becomes Really, really important. Brief grammar time. I took a whole lot of the grammar out, so I saved you from a lot of it. Articles. Do you know what an article is in grammar? It's very simple. In English, we have two articles. We have the definite article, and we have the indefinite article. The is the definite article. Elizabeth II is the queen of England. We may be watching the crown right now, so we've got Elizabeth II in my mind. Elizabeth II is the queen of England. There is right now only one queen of England, and she's like 96 or something, 94. She's old. She is the queen. That's the definite article, the. A, A is the indefinite article. Elizabeth II is a queen. There have been other queens. Uh, She is one of the queens. So definite article, the indefinite article, A. Here's the twist. In the Greek that the New Testament was written in, there is no indefinite article. Right? There is no word in front of the words that's just uh, the word a or an. So it's context that determines how we translate a word and what, if any article, the or a, we would supply. So Greek is different. So our JW friends would argue then that if you look there at the last phrase of 1-1, there, um, the word was God, they'll point out that there's a definite article in the Greek. There's a the before the word, and then they'll say there's no definite article before God. There's no the before God. And so they'll say, hey, listen, that means we have to supply the indefinite article A. So it's the word article was a God because it has no article in the Greek. Again. Wrong. Again, this is just a poor understanding of grammar used to defend a poor and damnable understanding of theology. Again, I don't want to spend much time on this, uh, but this is just not how Greek works. Look at your text. Let me just give you an example, a couple examples from the text. Look down at verse 6. You see there in the text in verse 6 where it says, There was a man sent from God. Guess what? In the Greek, no article, right? no the. And yet, the Jehovah's Witnesses rightly translate this verse, there was a man sent from God. They don't say a God. Look at verse 12. The right to become children of God. No article. It's not children of a God. It's understood that the context demands that this is the children of the God. It's the same in verse 13. It's the same in verse 18. It's the same throughout the Gospel of John. They're simply wrong. John is clear throughout his gospel, that he wants us to understand that Jesus is God. We've already seen Thomas confess it at the end. Down in verse 18, we see Jesus described as the only God at the Father's side. We're going to see the many I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus claims I am, God's name for himself. We're going to see the Jews even recognize what Jesus is doing in chapter 10, verse 33, when they take up stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so the deity of Christ does not in any way depend upon this one verse. Um, So if you're talking with a Jehovah's Witness, don't go to John 1.1. Go to many of these other places that demonstrate very clearly the deity of Christ. They're prepared for this verse. They're not prepared for all the other verses. But this one verse does clearly assert the deity of Christ. In fact, where do you look at it? In the Greek, the word order literally has it, and God was the word. And so what John is trying to do is something very specific, and he does it very well. Our point is that the word, we're trying to see how the word is both God and with God 
And what John is trying to do with this masterfully constructed statement is to assert both of these things from the very beginning. He is intending that the whole of his gospel to follow will be read in light of this verse and these truths. He is intending that the whole of his gospel and thus the whole of the gospel be read in light of this identity of God. In other words, to read all of it in light of the Trinity. Point number two, God is Trinity. It is the identity of God that makes Christianity distinct. It is the Trinity of God that makes Christianity distinct. And so I want to argue that just as John intends the whole of his gospel to be read in this light, I want to encourage you that you need to increasingly read the whole of your life in this light, in light of the Trinity. The Trinity, as Michael Reeves puts it, is the governing center of all Christian belief. This is the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. But we so frequently, we tend to run from this doctrine and we avoid this doctrine. We act like it's entirely speculative when it's actually the most practical of doctrines. Everything hinges upon this. Could you lay out a basic biblical explanation of the Trinity if you were asked? You need to be able to do that. Hopefully after today, you'll be better equipped to do that. This is the very center and foundation of your faith because this is about the very nature and identity of your God. If Jesus is not God, if God is not triune, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not God, if God is not triune, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Last week we sang, come behold the wondrous mystery. Well, this is the great mystery of the Christian faith, the triunity of God. But a mystery is not an absurdity. I want to take just a couple of minutes to unpack the basics of this mystery because I think the text demands it. Uh, John 1.1 contains many of kind of the key constituent Parts of a full doctrine of the Trinity of God. We're trying to sort out how the Word can both be God and be with God, and it's the Trinity that is the answer. So so think with me a moment. What, What could we better spend our time doing? What could be a better object with which to engage our hearts and our minds? Why are we going to spend so much time on this? Why kind of try to get into some of the details and the technical nature of these things? It's because we're talking about God. The one who is light and life. The one in whom we find light and life. I can't help but quoting again Spurgeon's famous sermon 165 years ago this year. Spurgeon says this, and it's just wonderful. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the intention, attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. So let's try to get lost for a moment in God's immensity. Let's get drowned in his infinity. Let's talk for a second about the Trinity. We've never really kind of walked through in detail kind of what is the Trinity. So let's do that, but let's do it humbly and carefully. One more quote. Listen to Augustine. Listen to how Augustine opens his discussion of the Trinity. I love this because he's one of the greatest minds uh, who has ever lived. And here's what he says at the very beginning of his discussion of the Trinity. I will be attempting to say things that cannot altogether be said as they are thought by a man. When we think about God, the Trinity, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of grasping him as he is. Now, since we ought to think about the Lord our God always and can never think about him as he deserve, deserves, since at all times we should be praising him and blessing him, and yet no words of ours are capable of expressing him, I begin by asking him to help me understand and explain what I have in mind and to pardon any blunders I may make, for I am as keenly aware of my weakness as I am of my willingness. I love the humility of that. Um, but we're supposed to think about God 
Always. And our thoughts are, are always inadequate to the object that we're focusing on, but we were created to be consumed by something bigger than us, to revolve around something bigger than us. And that something is, is God himself. And so whatever I say is going to be inadequate to the object. Yes, there is great mystery here, but at the same time, God is the great revealer of mysteries. We cannot say everything, but we can say a lot. We cannot understand everything, but we can understand a lot because God has spoken. And what we're seeing here, as Hebrew 1 confirms, is that he has spoken to us by his Son. And so like the Gospel of John itself, there's great profundity and complexity when it comes to the Trinity. We cannot plumb its depths, but there's at the same time great simplicity. My four-year-old can grasp the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we just sang it, didn't we? Holy, 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 Lord, God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's, that's the Trinity, quite simple. God in three persons. And I want to keep reemphasizing. Listen, this is what distinguishes the Christian faith. You'll see a lot of similar morality across the various faiths, a lot of similar. This is the thing that sets apart Christianity. This is what makes the gospel so unique and so beautiful and so distinct. It's the identity of our God, and it is the fact that this God is three in one. Trinity, you hear people say, oh, well, the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Sure, fair enough, that's fine. But there are three basic and clear biblical affirmations that demand the doctrine of the Trinity. Three basic biblical affirmations that demand the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll run through them very quickly. And number one is quite simply that there is only one true God. Scripture is clear. There is only one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Psalm 18.31, For who is God but the Lord? Yahweh. And who is a rock except our God? No one. It's only him. First Timothy 2.5, For there is one God. There is only one God, beginning to end. Scripture is unified on that affirmation. But the second biblical affirmation that demands the doctrine of the Trinity is number two. Scripture identifies three persons who are distinct as God. Scripture identifies three persons who are distinct as God. We've already seen a number of the spots in John where Jesus claims to be God and he is worshipped as God. Uh, Colossians 1, 15, which we read, says he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19 says that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Philippians 2.6 says he was in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The New Testament is clear. Jesus is God. But we also then see uh, this with the Spirit, of whom the Scripture see, speaks as a person, not a force. I'm very excited about getting to John 14, 15, and 16 so we can unpack. Uh, we just get the Spirit so wrong today. Jesus tells us who the Spirit is and what he does in John 14, 15, and 16. And Jesus reveals him first uh, as a person, not a force. In John 16, 13, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he, personal pronoun, the Spirit, will guide you. And so we see the Spirit speak, we see him act, we see him comfort, we see him teach. In Acts 5, we see that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit is God. And then we have all, a couple of these spots where all three of these beautifully come together. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Three persons. Peter mentioned this morning when Jesus gives us the church, our marching orders in Matthew 28, verse 19, to make disciples. That includes baptizing them in the name, singular, this is a weird grammatical construction, the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here are the three persons identified as God. So affirmation one, there is one God. Affirmation two, scripture identifies three persons who are distinct as God. And then affirmation three, these three persons are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. These three persons are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. 
And so, the, the, the famous ancient Athanasian creed reads, We venerate one God in the Trinity, and the Trinity in oneness, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. The divine nature of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And nevertheless, they are not three gods, but there is one God. Does your mind feel somewhat stretched to its limit? It should, because you're not God. God is not like us. Look inside your bulletin there. Don't panic. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is chapter 2. On the other side of the page there from the sermon notes, this is chapter 2 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, or we call it the 1689 for short. Uh, this is the confession of faith that I personally ascribe to. I would identify myself as a Reformed Baptist. We are not, though, yet technically a Reformed Baptist church. But as churches these days are trending in the direction of being vaguer and more general, I would like to trend in the exact opposite direction, being clearer and more precise. It is kind to be clear on what we believe. 1689 is very helpful with that. Uh, it is clear, it is concise, and it is comprehensive. And those things are increasingly lacking. Some, some churches don't even have statements of faith anymore on their websites. Like, oh, we believe in God. All right, great. Um, when to know what I believe? Here it is. It's in the 1689, uh, except for like two tiny little things. Um, so we'll talk about this sometime. So I'm gonna be, you're going to be hearing about this more uh, from me. As things get more vague, I want to get more precise. Maybe 2021 is the time that we consider making this move. I'm going to keep seeding that ground, and we'll come back to that. Um, but you often hear people say that doctrine divides. Well, sure, of course it does. And at times it should. We should be divided from Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They deny the deity of the Jesus whom we love and we cherish. They deny the very ground and hope of our salvation, that Jesus is both God and man. So their doctrine divides. That's good. But that's not all that doctrine does. Doctrine is supposed to delight. This is God that we're talking about. As we heard Spurgeon say earlier, the best thing that can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. He goes on, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of him, of Christ, and him crucified, and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. That's what we're doing here. This is soul-expanding study. Right? Your time on social media is soul-sucking study. This is soul-expanding study. The doctrine of the God whom we love and who loves us is supposed to delight us. Right? As, as a man in love delights to study and to stare at and to know his beloved, right? so the children of God delight to the study and to stare at and to know our beloved. Right? Doctrine delights and doctrine drives. It's what motivates us, and it's what moves us. Right? That's the, the, the justification behind Peter's statement earlier, that we don't evangelize because we don't know God. Because if we really knew this God, oh, then we'd want to talk about him. Right? We'd have to talk about him, because he's this good, and this beautiful, and this glorious. What we believe determines what we do. So look there, over there the paragraph. Look at chapter 3, uh, chapter 2. I'm just going to read paragraph Three for the sake of time. I would like to go through this whole thing with you, but we simply don't have time. But I just put this here in part to encourage you to use this. It's brilliantly compact and concise and yet comprehensive and reveals to us biblically who our God is and what he is like and how great he is. Have you ever just simply meditated on the bigness of God, the attributes of God? Get A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Get J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Get one of these, we have some extras if you want one, and start studying the things of God. Look at paragraph three there. Here's simply, here's the Trinity, well put in this confession of faith. It says, this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. That's the Trinity. And we could spend hours and hours and hours unpacking that statement. I would like to, but I will spare you. Or as the shorter catechism puts it, question five, is there more than one God? No, there is only one, the true and living God. Question six, how many persons are in the one God? Three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And that is how the word can both be God and be with God. Because there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. God is Trinity. Okay, but so what? What's the big deal? Why spend all this time on this? Do you, regular Joe Christian in the pew, need to know about the doctrine of the Trinity? Of course you do. What a silly question. Of course you do. This is God that we're talking about. Because last point, Trinity is life. Look again at the last line of paragraph three. It looks all complicated and it looks all abstract and theoretical, but look at that last line. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. That's so good. Right? This is about fellowship. This is about relationship with God and our comfort in that fellowship and that relationship, which is life. And all of that rests on this doctrine of the Trinity, this distinct and unique identity of our God. We looked briefly at this last week when we saw that the word is relational, right? The word is with God. And we saw that this is this unique Greek preposition. It's not the normal word for with. It's the word pros, which actually means to or toward. It kind of means that the word is oriented around. The word exists in movement towards God, or as some have translated, the word was face to face with God. In other words, in the beginning was relationship. And go out there and talk with anybody on the street. We're working on doing this more. Ask the first person you see on the street you know, what they believe about God, what they believe God is like. And you'll probably get something like God is love. And they would be correct, but they wouldn't know why. And they wouldn't understand that they are stealing from us, uh, that they are stealing from this, because this is the only way that God can be love, if God is Trinity. What was God doing before he created the world? Uh, what was God doing in the beginning? There's this joke that used to say, like, oh, he was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. I used to think that was funny, and I've just gotten increasingly uncomfortable with jokes and anything about hell. Uh, because the more you study it and the more you understand what this reality actually is, this is not something that we joke about. Um, we, we've had to teach our girls our university's chant differently than the, the chant exists because it ends with by proclaiming, go to hell, Duke. I used to think that was like, oh, funny, and it's a rivalry, and you know we don't like Duke. I mean, listen, Duke's terrible. Um, but I got to the point where I realized, like, I can't, what? I can't say that. I can't joke about that. This is, this is not funny. So we, we don't joke about these things. We don't use this word as, as a swear word because we're talking about a significant reality here. Um, tangent. What was God doing before he created the world? Jesus gives us a hint in John 17, 24, when he says to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so again, our minds are stretched to their limit. How do we understand a time before time? We can't. But Jesus tells us 
That there's something, there's God and he's there and he exists. And we see that, so the God who creates is first the God who relates. The God who is Lord is first the God who is love. And it is only as Trinity that God can eternally be the God of love. Because love requires an object to be loved, to pour that love um, out upon. And so all of these false gods that are only one, the God of Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, cannot be the God of love. It is only the God who is eternally three in one who can be the God of love that we all so desperately need. The love of God is dependent upon the Trinity of God. And so John reveals to us Jesus as the Word, the one who reveals God to us. And in the first 13 verses, he only uses the titles Word and God. Again, he's doing something. He's a good writer. He's building towards something. And he's building towards verse 14, which is clearly the climax. We'll see if we can time it, that we do verse 14 on Christmas Sunday. The most amazing and important thing that has ever happened, verse 14, notice how the titles shift for the first time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only first time, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, Jesus, the only God at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so he, the Son, has made him, the Father, known. Listen, here is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Here's why we're taking a whole sermon, basically again, to look at only one verse. John is going to use the word God 83 times in this book. And that seems like a lot until we compare it to some of the other books. Luke uses God 122 times in his gospel, 166 times in Acts. Just in Romans, Paul uses God 153 times, 548 times in all of his writings. And that's a lot. So 83 in John is actually not that much. It's less than any of the others. Why is that? It's because John delights to speak regularly of this same being as Father. And he does so 122 times. Matthew speaks of God as Father 45 times. 122 in John. Paul, in all of his writings, 548 gods. How many fathers? Only 63. John calls God Father 122 times. More than any other book. It is John who gives central importance and emphasis to the revelation of God as Father. And so verse 14 explains verse 1. The Word who is the Son, as the Son is God, and as the Son is with God, the Father who is God. And this is what is distinct about our God. And he's not just God, Lord, King, Almighty, Sovereign. He's not first creator. He is all of those things. But first, we're seeing that he here is, he's Father. And John, by beginning, in the beginning, with the Word who is with God, the Word who reveals God, John is building towards verse 14. And one of the main things that he wants to communicate and convey in this book, and it is this revelation of God as Father. The most foundational thing about God is that he is Father. And if God is first Father, then he must be relational. He must be loving. He must be life-giving. All that he does, he does as Father. The church fathers would frequently use the metaphor of a fountain to describe God as Father. Just as it is the nature of a, of a fountain to overflow and to pour forth water, so it is the nature of God to overflow and to pour forth life. And this is the God that we worship. He's not some cold, distant, abstract deity, but he's Father who from eternity has been pouring out his love on his Son, and then who reveals himself to us and reveals his love to us in the very sending of that Son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Again, meaning not he loved the world so, so, so much. No, God loved the world in this way. He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3.16, God 
God is love. Again, everyone stole that from here, from us. How does God reveal that love to us? 1 John 3, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. See, that's the gospel. It's the good news of a gracious and good father who sends his son into the world to take the place of sinners, to take the sin of sinners, to live and die and rise again so that we might believe in him and have life through him. And all of that only makes sense and is only possible. Your salvation is only possible. Life is only possible if the word is both with God and is God. If God is Trinity, three in one, Spirit, Son, Father. Do you know and delight in God as Father? As J.I. Packer has famously written, what is a Christian? How would you answer that question? Here's how he answers it. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. He continues, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. That's what Jesus has come to reveal to us. And that's what John is particularly concerned that we get. God as Father. And so he moves from the Word with God to the Son from the Father to what end? In the verse 12, that we might become children of God. And that is life. Knowing the God who is life. Becoming children by grace through faith of the God who is life. This is the end and this is the goal. Adoption as God's children. This is the highest privilege that is offered to us. This is what we live for and what we desire and what we want. Adoption as his children. Romans 8 verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the cry of every Christian. That is the the identity of every Christian. One who has God as his Father. The Father made known to us here in the beginning through this word who is both with God and is God. The Word who is the Son, who took on flesh, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And all of that, the forgiveness of those terrible sins of yours, and the terrible sins of mine, all of that, the free gift of life in His name, uh, adoption, reconciliation, redemption, justification, all of it entirely dependent on God as Trinity. The God who is three in one. The God who is Father who sends His Son to come and bring us into loving, eternal fellowship with Him. Life with Him. This this is not abstract, theoretical doctrine. It is immensely practical. Your relationship with the Lord is dependent in large part on your knowledge of Him. And John opens up by revealing to you God as the one who is three in one. One And everything depends on this. Do you know God as he has revealed himself here in the beginning of John? Do you delight in thinking on the things of God? Do you pray, as we read in Colossians 1, that you would increase in the knowledge of God? That's the desire of every child of God, to know him better. And we do that through his word as we plunge into what he has revealed about himself, his nature, his identity, his glory, but also his goodness and his grace and his mercy. I'll give the final word to to Spurgeon, the the rest of his quote from earlier. I just, I love this quote. Again, was all this, why all this thinking? Why all this theology? Is this all really necessary? Because yes, because theology is for life. Our, our living is a direct result of our believing. There's nothing more impractical, there's nothing more practical than studying the doctrine of God. And so Spurgeon says this subject is eminently 
consolatory, or comforting. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a, um, a cure for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. Do you know how to muse on God? Do you know uh, what it means uh, to contemplate Christ and to rest in him and abide in him and to fix your mind on him? Spurgeon is right in saying that is where you find the cure that you are looking for. That is where you find the rest uh, for your soul. Stop looking everywhere else. Stop the self-medicating. Stop the distracting and turn to him and know him who is light and life. The word was God. God is Trinity. And John is telling us here that Trinity is life. Know God as he has revealed himself to you in his word. Um, let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, we never can say enough about your word. Uh, we can never adequately express uh, your greatness, and your glory, your, your majesty. Uh, we can never fully appreciate your, your kindness, and your mercy, and your grace. So Father, I uh, ask that you would do what we are incapable of doing. I ask that you would do what I am incapable of doing. I pray that you would expand our vision of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, we are finite and you are infinite. Uh, we are sinful and you are holy. Father, we ask uh, that you would speak to us and work on us uh, through your word. We thank you that we are counted righteous uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would um, give us great joy. I pray that that would give us a great desire uh, to know him better. Um, Father, I pray... Um, that you would forgive us um, for how apathetic we are about the things of God. I pray that you would drive us to your word and that you would help us, uh, give us the desire, Father, uh, to know you. Give me the desire uh, to know you. Give me the desire to use my time and steward my time well, um, based upon what is true and what is real, based upon eternity. I pray that every single one of us would increasingly live in light of that eternity. We'd increasingly live in light of who you are, uh, who you have made us to be, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, your people, your possession, and for the purpose that you have called us to, which is to know you and to love you, to live with you, to live for you, and to proclaim your excellencies. Father, we first need to see and treasure and delight in those excellencies. And so I pray that you would help us to do that and help us to do that through your word. Father, I pray for anyone in here who does not uh, know you, who has not uh, found a life in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, please save them. Father, please work uh, through the preaching of the word here at Woodside Community Church. Uh, please work through our um, evangelistic efforts here at Woodside Community Church, through the teaching, um, through the counseling, through the fellowship. Father, we pray um, that you would work uh, through this church to bring sinners from death to life uh, for your glory and, and for the good of this church and for the good of those around us. Father, please work. Uh, we need your help. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.